millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to science writer Simon Ings about how revolutionary Russia tried to light its way to the future with the fitful glow of science in his latest book, Stalin and the Scientists. Simon Ings is the arts editor of New Scientist magazine. His novels include The Weight of Numbers and Wolves. His science writing includes The Eye and Natural History. He divides his time between a sweltering glass-walled penthouse in Dubai and what may be London's coldest flat, writing and reviewing for broadsheets and magazines including Nature and The Spectator. And Simon's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Stalin and the Scientists, A History of Triumph and Tragedy, 1905-1953. to Simon, it's great to have you back. It's lovely to be back. Why this book, this <laughs> book that covers a, a huge period of time? And incidentally nearly killed me. It was because I wanted to do a nice, simple, short biography of a chap called Alexander Luria, who is uh, regarded, quite rightly, as the founder of neuropsychology. Uh, he was also a developmental psychologist, uh, an anthropologist. He had an astonishing career. Born in the 1900s, died in the 1970s, had friends all over the world, published all over the world, had a happy marriage, children who loved him, colleagues who respected him, at which point you realise there isn't a biography here because his life was too normal. But the thing is that it was normal while he lived under Stalin. Mm-hmm. It was normal while he was having to duck and dive and change careers every six months to avoid being thrown into jail, essentially. So in order to capture why his success, his very ordinary-looking, entirely admirable, but ordinary-looking success was so unusual, uh, I ended up having to cover the whole period and the whole of the philosophy and the politics of Soviet science during the Stalin era. So it's a classic example of mission creep. So what was science like in Russia under the Tsars then, before, before the various revolutions? Since Peter the Great, who uh, founded his uh, Academy of Sciences, uh, which was the flagship scientific institution of the Russian Empire in its various forms until Pavlov sold the uh, family silver a few years ago. Pavlov? Did I say Pavlov? I meant Putin. I meant Vladimir Putin. Putin did what Stalin and Khrushchev... Uh, Khrushchev tried to destroy the the Academy of uh, Sciences and they threw him out because of it. 
uh, Vladimir Putin comes along and sells the family silver and gets away with it. So there you go. So since Peter the Great's time, uh, there was a huge interest in what science could do for a nation, for an empire that suffered from huge food shortages, huge problems with famine going back. We got records from about 800. We got really good records of how much Russia has starved over, the, uh, over a millennium. And the Academy of Sciences was largely, uh, was meant to be two institutions that were supposed to be an institution for foreign visitors, basically, a Western European academy. And then there was supposed to be a homegrown academy beside it that was going to learn Western science, develop its own native science and become the major institution. Even Peter the Great was capable of running out of money on occasion, however, and only the European Academy survived. So there were extraordinary individuals, a large number of extraordinary individuals, actually, working across Europe, visiting uh, the Pasteur Institute, visiting Germany, uh, visiting Britain, visiting Cambridge... Uh, the John Innes Institute, uh, all these uh, amazing European institutions were flooded with Russian intellectuals. Paris in particular was a sea of Russian intellectuals long before they got kicked out after the revolution. It didn't have a homegrown science base, though. It didn't have the funding to have the laboratories. At a time when the rest of Europe was learning how to do big science and put science out of the study and into the laboratory mm -hmm. and actually fund that laboratory and build specific buildings to do relatively big experiments like the sort that uh, Ernest Rutherford was playing about with in Cambridge at the Cavendish Institute. Uh, Russia had none of that. And there was a big desire on the part, both of the Liberals in the 1905, the failed 1905 revolution, and the Bolsheviks in the 1917 revolutions, to develop big science on the model of Western Europe and actually try and get a, what we would now call a science base. We happily chat about science bases, but they had nothing like that in the last time. Well, beyond that, though, there's, science plays a, an important part in the ideology as well. So let's talk about Marx and Engels. What was their idea about how science would be used in a, a, a future socialist society? So... I guess we're talking about dialectical materialism. Yeah, as yeah. Idea. Well, there are there are a couple of things, a couple of ways into this. The first thing to say, I think, is that along with the liberals, the bourgeois liberals, the Marxists wanted a science that could be applied for the good of the people. There was there was a massive emphasis on let's have no more dry theory. Let's actually try and do something. And this is not uh, later. This became an attack levelled at science itself. But originally, it, it comes from a very different place. It comes from frustration with a country that has no institutions. It has no political institutions. It has no schools, has no roads, has no hospitals. So the idea that you can use science for an immediate practical purpose is understandable and actually quite a reasonable priority to put on what you want to do with science. Now... Through an uh, accident of circumstances, we, we come to the second point, which is that Marxism believed in uh, sort of 19th century scientific positivism, which was already becoming out of date. Marx and Engels were essentially fans of science, and they wanted their Marxism to be discovering the underlying laws of the historical process. And their philosophy, which was mainly worked out by Friedrich Engels, was really quite canny because it said, well, if there's an historical process to history and to politics and to the way people behave, maybe there's an historical process to 
everything. And the moment everything has a history, you can start to explain things that, say, Newtonian physics can't explain. Newton was very open about this. He says in his optics, uh, I'm going to split light with a prism and I will create a rainbow on the wall. And more or less word for word, he says, I can measure the thing. I can't tell you anything about the colour. I can measure the bands, but I can say nothing about the colour. Also, he can't say, Newtonian mechanics can't say anything about how water turns to steam when you heat it or to ice when it gets cold. It can't say why, when you boil a pot of porridge, the bubbles in the porridge form a hexagonal shape. He can't say anything about emergent properties because they're simply not part of his physics. And Newton's aware of the limitations of what he's doing. And those limitations have been sitting there for hundreds of years. And Engels says, ah, well, wait a minute. If we introduce the idea of an historical process, we actually get this idea. He didn't talk in terms of emergent properties, but that's what he was coming up with, essentially. He'd come up with a way of looking at the world that said that properties can emerge from systems. So we no longer look at objects, we look at their relations in terms of systems. So we no longer have to talk about a thing called water or a thing called steam or a thing called ice. We can talk about a series of properties. Now that's great hand-waving. And if you're a biologist, you'll shrug and say, yeah, everything's a system. That's We've known that for a long time. We knew that in the 19th century. That's good, fine. If you're a physicist, you're tearing your hair out, saying, what do you mean things have a history? Uh, I mean, recently, we've, uh, it's becoming more and more current and more and more acceptable to say that maybe physical constants and physical laws do have a history, that they are historically contingent. But we've come a long way by saying that they're linear and symmetrical. We've come a long way from ignoring all that. So there's immediately a, a, a tension set up between the Marxist idea of science and some sciences from a formal point of view, because some sciences don't like the idea of history as much as other ones. The big central problem with Marxism as a science, however, is that it elides this idea of scientific positivism, the idea that everything will eventually have a causal explanation. By that light, everything gets explained in terms of everything else. Everything becomes conveniently reductive in that your psychiatry can be explained through your psychology, which can be explained through your neuroanatomy, which can be explained through histology, study of cells, which then can be explained in terms of chemistry, which then can be explained in terms of physics. And everything's supposed to knit together beautifully. And this was a very conventional 19th century idea. Yeah, I was going to say that, because this is, this is not just what everybody's thinking on, along those lines of, you know, we've basically discovered everything that there is to discover, really, yeah. now. It's just like dotting the I's and crossing the T's. It's the moment of the 1911. And obviously, you know, yeah. x-rays yeah, and quantum physics and genetics and things are the horizon. where it tips over. Yeah. That's where it all goes horribly wrong, because... Even at the moment where a self-consciously scientific government is being set up in a wasteland in 1917, they say, we can do this, we can create 19th century uh, positivistic, scientific, rational government on this plot of nothing that we've inherited. At that very moment, all the people that they are fans of are going, oh, it's not going to work. Uh, science is useful, it's not true. <laughs> and um, this is, I mean, it sent Lenin, a uh, number of his uh, uh, contemporaries talk about Lenin going completely nuts 
completely mad for a while. I want to see because he was book. hearing about uh, you know Ernst Mack saying that science can be useful, but it can't be true. It's this book and that Lenin writes. Oh, um, oh, the impossible title. Uh, something uh, materialism, materialism and imperial criticism. Materialism and imperial criticism. Yes. Well, he essentially is fighting this huge rearguard action uh, because he's having to defend an idea of scientific government at the very point where some of the most influential scientists of the day, uh, the leading one being Ernst Mach, uh, who we know best for the Mach number, but he was a, a physicist and, a, and a, what we'd call him an experimental psychologist now. The term didn't apply then, obviously. Lenin was fighting a rearguard actually trying to defend scientific positivism against the scientific community itself, and also against his rival for power, the co-founder of the Bolshevik movement, uh, Alexander Bogdanov. And Bogdanov loved Max's ideas and thought, no, this is, this is, you know, this is, the world is bigger than the science. This is a really cool idea. And he's a science fiction writer, so he loves all that kind of, you know, hand-waving claptrap. So, you know, he thinks it's wonderful. Oh, you know, the world is bigger than we are. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, and Lenin wrote about six... Uh, a letter in six notebooks, which he passively, aggressively entitled uh, Love Letter to uh, Alexander Bogdanov. And it is one of the most inarticulate works of philosophy ever visited upon the face of the earth. Um, it's been a running sore in uh, Marxist studies ever since it was written. It's incredibly uh, rude as well. It's just a howl. The more you read into it, I mean, you can do some study and see where Lenin is coming from. And it's not altogether, you know, I, I'd rather take the mickey out of it in my book for the sake of brevity. There is some substance to it. But what he's essentially saying is, no, the world is the world and we have an immediate apperception of the world. Uh, when we see the world, when we think about the world, that is an entirely accurate mirror of the way the world is. And by saying that, he basically gets rid of any problems of a separation between perception and reality. What he's basically trying to do is, in the absence of a fully-fledged psychology, he's trying to avoid all the psychological problems that you arrive at if you can't make a one-to-one -one bridge between the world and the, the person perceiving it. And even this wouldn't have been a problem had he not been quite so hysterical because he'd basically, his, his part of the, um, of the revolutionary uh, Bolshevik movement, he only had a few hundred left. He only had a few hundred people left. Uh, Bogdanov had uh, tens of thousands uh, were under Bogdanov. So he was absolutely at the point of losing everything. So it's shrill. And then what happens is that this shrill, messy document becomes a set text, it becomes canonical and starts to suck everything in around it. So that Pavlov, who, do, who did all his good work before the revolution, and as an old man only turned to psychology because he couldn't, uh, he couldn't be bothered to replicate data in the light of recent findings within physiology. Because he was a physiologist, a very good physiologist studying digestion. He only turned to psychology because it gave his students something to do and prevented him from getting into spats with men 30 years younger than him when he was kind of tired. He's had a career. You know, he wants to do something. He's in his philosophers. Basically, he wants to do the nice general hand-waving mm -hmm. stuff. So he gets into psychology and he sucked into this morass of rather lumpen philosophy that Lenin is cooking up. And he is held up as a strong material, you know, he's found a materialist model of mind. And he agrees with Lenin and Lenin agrees with Pavlov. And Pavlov, you know, by the time Pavlov was dead, the state had taken Pavlov and was using him as a blunt stick to beat anyone who actually wanted to do some real psychology.
Let me move into the second part. I want to start talking about individual fields and more specifically, mm. we'll look at those through individual scientists and, and what happened to those. But like on more general terms, just, just to finish this part, when Stalin takes power, what are the what are the sort of essential differences in the way that science as a field is organised in the Soviet Union? What does he change? Well, Stalin inherited a major Bolshevik project of education, the need to educate uh, an illiterate workforce to the level at which they would be able to build factories, never mind run them. And in order to do that, uh, Stalin found himself in a bind because he couldn't trust, he felt he couldn't trust the um, the older generation who remembered life before the war. Because the thing to remember is that the Bolsheviks didn't arrive as this revolutionary force and sort of tread on everyone in the process of doing that. They inherited a country that was already full of revolutionaries, liberal revolutionaries who tried and failed to overthrow the state in 1905. So they're not dealing with people who just want a quiet life and just work in the laboratories or their studies or their concert halls, whoever it happens to be. They're dealing with experienced revolutionaries of a different party. And so he feels that he can't trust this generation. And he's probably right in that. Uh, The other problem he has is that they're just aren't the resources to be able to pull an illiterate generation of peasants who are not only illiterate but are massively suspicious of education, massively suspicious of learning. You can't pull people from that background to the level at which they can build and operate whole factories and whole industries in less than a generation. Mm -hmm. They tried. They tried very hard. They had some extraordinary successes, but essentially it's it's not doable. So his answer to this was massive centralisation, massive regimentation, and those drivers in the end, to leap to the end of the story, drove the development of what was essentially a prison economy. An economy where you took the people who knew what they were doing and kept them in prison so you could control them. So you could take the benefits of the bourgeois specialists, but you were able to contain them in an environment where they couldn't get into any political trouble. And what one of the more... I I don't know whether it's a bitter irony or a a delightful irony. I I, I can't quite decide which. But what happened in that system of Sharashkas, the specialist prisons, was that actually you had extraordinary intellectual freedom at times. It was the Sharashkas that provided a home for geneticists at a time when they were persona non grata in the rest of the Soviet Union. You had extraordinary amount of work saved by the Sharashka system. And, and there's one particular story I tell about a, a guy called Gennady who was operating a Sharashka in the immediate post-war period who was an economist and knew nothing about science. But he was canny and he was curious and he seems like quite a good guy. And he said, OK, teach me everything I need to know about genetics. And the amount of genetics that came out of that Sharashka was quite extraordinary. And it was, a particular, it was a particular form of genetics that has to do with radiobiology, the influence of radioisotopes in the environment once the environment has been exposed to radiation. And the data that came out of that Sharashka is still used by the UN now. That those are the basic data sets by which uh, the UN sets policy on how to deal with contaminated land uh, and what international protocols apply to uh, emergencies and, de- uh, and contamination. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Simon Ings and we're talking about Stalin and the scientists. And Simon, as, as I said, I want to start moving on to look at some mm. of the scientists themselves now and their stories. Before we do that, not strictly a scientist, but you know, a figure that crops up repeatedly throughout this book that sort of spans both the old regime and then, and becomes a, a, a sort of flag waver for the new is um, is Gorky. Yes. So what role does he play in this story? Well, in a society without schools, hospitals, roads, uh, there is really only one way of getting things done, and that is through a system of patronage. And the patron system in the Soviet Union, no one expected the patron system that operated under the Tsar to disappear overnight. The thing is, the patron system works. You look after your clients, and you yourself are looked after by your patron. And that system of networks, which seems very uh, nepotistic to us, is actually a perfectly workable form of administration. Entire empires have worked that way. The Roman Empire was a patronage network. It worked really quite well for quite a long time. And Gorky was a hugely successful, important, generous, energetic and strangely insincere patron for most of his career. He saved people's, he saved countless lives. He was uh, operating uh, before the revolution, obviously. Um, He came to support scientists and artists during the Civil War. He pulled countless people out of prison when they were charged with uh, uh, offences by um, a young and largely paranoid uh, secret police, the NKVD. Uh, He was also setting up institutions to make sure that people didn't starve in the cities. And this is quite important when your cities are getting decimated. He was then persuaded to leave because he had, as far as Lenin was concerned, far too much invested in the old order, in the generation that had taken part in the 1905 failed revolution, the liberal revolution. And it was felt that he had too many uh, liberal friends and there needed to be, a, a, a chronologically a mischievous, there needed to be a year zero, if you can forgive me for using that term about this period. Um, so he was sent off and he lived uh, rather successfully for some years um, in, uh, let me think, I think he went to Italy uh, yeah, for, for, like for some years. Well, he was in Capri before the revolution. Uh, I think he went back to Italy after. And eventually people got bored of, the old soak maundering on about the revolution and his particular form of writing, because he was obviously a novelist, uh, ceased to be fashionable. So eventually he came back to the Soviet Union. He was persuaded to come back by uh, Joseph Stalin and seems to have been completely seduced by Stalin's project. Now, Gorky always hated the countryside. He came from the countryside. He absolutely hated it. Uh, He wanted nothing to do with the peasantry who were regarded as ignorant, awful, ghastly people who, the sooner they get educated in the cities, the better. So he was very much on point as far as the general philosophy, the general sort of Stalinist approach to the economy was concerned. But his willingness to play the poster boy for heroic engineering projects that were to consume hundreds of thousands of lives. Projects like the White Sea Canal, Magnetostroy, uh, these, these gigantic, often very badly managed big engineering projects essentially has ruined his reputation ever since 
And there are strange hints in the historical record, which it doesn't look as if they'll ever get fully unpacked, but there are strange hints that he was trying to play a double game and that he was paying lip service to Stalin while actually being one of the conspirators trying to trying to get rid of him. I have my doubts, to be perfectly honest, because around the same time as he was being handed newspapers specially printed for him so that he couldn't read about his own developing illness because the world public was being massaged for his death, which was almost certainly a murder. At roughly the same historical period you have in uh, Italy, D'Annunzio was put under house arrest also by uh, Mussolini, and Mussolini gave him so many bottles of wine and so many nice things in his palatial prison overlooking Lake Garda that it is said that D'Annunzio never realised that he was in prison. And I think something very similar happened to Gorky. He was never entirely aware that he'd been put into prison. He was flattered to death, as it were. So in Gorky, you see the operation of the patronage system and not its decline. Not its decline. He declines, but the patronage system remains because what happens is that Stalin one by one, gets rid of all the other patrons and becomes the uber-patron. He becomes the patron of everybody. The the patron system is maintained until it's almost the only institution that matters within the Soviet Union is Stalin as patron. And, of course, this is what sent Stalin mad in the end. He was patron to everyone, so he had to have an opinion about everything. And the stories of Stalin's important opinions about everything after the war, are quite extraordinary. You know, even while he was uh, uh, dealing with the Berlin crisis and uh, talking with uh, Kim Jong-il about how to invade South Korea, he was uh, editing, he was writing letters about uh, philology and was editing scientific papers for scientific errors and was telling Shostakovich how to change the orchestration of the new... Uh, national anthem and was writing the last scenes of a play about a medical a particularly sort of highly coloured medical story of the time and it just goes on and on and on he's gradually driven mad by his sense of obligation that he has to be a philosopher king because he comes from that 19th century positivistic tradition that we were talking about earlier you know if he's going to be the ruler, if he's going to be general secretary, he has to know everything. He has an absolute obligation to be a philosopher king because Hitler was far more modern. Hitler never thought he had knew everything. Hitler was a bit thick, but he had good people around him who could handle the media. Stalin was never that. He was an idealist. Tell us who Vladimir Vernadsky is because he, he sort of, he's at the beginning of his mm. book and then he sort of plays a significant part later on as well. He does. Well, he's your archetypal liberal revolutionary, in a way. I mean, he's of an age. He was of an age, even in 1905. I mean, he, was, uh, I mean, he lived forever. And he was, he was an old man, even at the revolution. Well, you know, he, was, he was, had, had a full career, even by the time of the revolution. What's particularly interesting about Vanensky, and would be worth a biography, um, someone cannier than me ought to, ought to do one, quite frankly, What's interesting about him is that he invented ecology, essentially. He was, the first, he was the first true ecologist. He developed a theory of how the planet in its inanimate components, rocks, relate to the animate planet of animals and plants. And he realised that most of the minerals that are on the surface of the Earth wouldn't be around if it were not for life processes, 
which means that you can start today how long life has been around on Earth by looking at the rocks. From that, he says, well, OK, you've got... The um, you, you've got the substratum of you know you have the mantle, then you have a crust which is transformed by life, then you have the skin of life itself. And as, as he um, as he worked, he developed what he was very consciously and very sort of self consciously aware were quite mystical ideas, which he didn't trot out until the end of his life. Not because he didn't have them before, but because he didn't want to queer his pitch with his colleagues. Uh, but basically what he said was, yeah, an intelligence is another layer on the Earth. An intelligence is doing to the stuff of the planet, is transforming the stuff of the planet far more rapidly than even life did. He invents the Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. The Anthropocene starts with Fernansky. And then he goes one stage further and he talks about the noosphere and he talks about uh, the infosphere. He talks about uh, knowledge in, uh, in its abstract sense. He's mm -hmm. essentially creating the idea of uh, an, uh, an infosphere that we talk about in terms of, you know, what, it sort of borders on post-human uh, post and extropian discussions that are kicking around. But he, he does them much better than most people do them now. Um, so he's quite an extraordinary figure. But he never loses his passion for minerals. He's a mineralogist. And so it was his insistence that maybe if we want a bomb, we ought to find some uranium and do it now rather than later. He was, he's also the father of the Russian atomic bomb because he was the one who said, look, we can muck about with theory till the cows come home. Could we actually go and dig up some uranium? Maybe, possibly. And he has whole institutions dedicated to finding these rare materials uh, long before the, uh, the bomb arrives. I mean, at the beginning of the revolution, he and a colleague called Firstman uh, created an organisation called uh, KEPS, K-E-P-S, which is dedicated to trying to work out, uh, trying to exploit the richness of the uh, of Russian mineral holdings. And he's so significant and so well-liked, such a good bureaucrat, a hugely important figure in the 1905 revolution. If 1905 had succeeded, he'd have led the country, without a doubt, because it already proved his worth as a, a fantastic bureaucrat in the best sense. He was able to get things done. He saved a lot of people from starvation during the uh, 1897 uh, famine. And he led the political party that was the leading reformist party in 1905. He's such a powerful individual that Lenin simply makes deals with him. And so there's a, there's a collegiate relationship mm -hmm. between Lenin and Vernansky that holds even when Lenin is calling his colleagues, literally calling them shits and saying, we have to get rid of the shit. We have to get rid of the old generation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Hannah Fry. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Going from the uh, the best of that generation, if we want to talk about morally bankrupt, I think I know where this is. Perhaps can we talk about uh, Ilya Ivanov for a bit? Oh, bless him! I like Ilya. Uh, yeah, Ivanov was a celebrity um, before the revolution because uh, he was an expert in. Uh, artificial insemination and at a time when this was an experimental curiosity he found a way of artificially inseminating horses which meant that you could get 10 times the number of foals out of a stallion than you would by simply giving the stallion a good time and when agriculture power supply is not the tractor it's the horse this really matters. So he transformed world... It's not too much to say that Ilya Ivanov transformed world agriculture. Now, unfortunately, come the revolution, his patronage network fell apart. His patrons left, they fled, um, or died in the Civil War, I think, in, in a couple of cases. And so he found himself without backers. So what he needed to do was to fairly quickly come up with a set of proposals that would catch the eye of a new set of scientific backers, people like Anatoly Lunacharsky, who was head of the Commissariat of Education, and uh, people within uh, uh, agriculture and um, like institutions. You know, what, what could he come up with? So he got a research assistant to do some work to see whether it might be possible to cross a human being with some sort of vape. Because if you could do that, then that would be a perfect demonstration of evolution in action it would demonstrate that humans were a primate uh it would be a massive uh, propaganda it would be a massive propaganda boost for the state and it also made scientific sense now for for many years now we've known that the cross is not possible and the reason the cross is not possible is actually really quite complex there are immune problems which mean that you can't do any kind of cross between a human being and any other primate but the idea is not stupid and until you've found out what those problems are, even the fact that, uh, it, you know, a Przalski's horse, you can cross a horse with a Przalski's horse and they have different number of chromosomes. Even with a different number of chromosomes, a cross is possible. There's nothing on paper at first glance that says you can't cross a human being with, uh, with an ape. So he proposes this, and this is very much in his line of work. He's been crossing animals for decades He's been, he's been proposing unusual crosses to get money. That's what his career was based upon. Because his whole development of artificial insemination was not simply as an agricultural tool, although he was very comfortable with that idea. It was also for him an experimental tool so he could explore evolution in action. He wanted to see where, you know, whether this was a tool to be able to work out 
lineages of different animals and how they how they evolved and how they'd split off from earlier forms and all the rest of it. So it's not that big a jump for him to say, well, let's try a human and an ape. And in terms of propaganda, everyone loves it. Everyone loves it. I don't just mean in the Soviet Union. The French adore it. He goes to the Pasteur Institute where Foreign Office, you know, sticking eight testicles in old men and getting really quite surprisingly good results out of it. Uh, and you know, single-handedly inventing endocrinology as a result. So he goes to the Pasteur Institute and Voronoff's all over and says, what a fantastic idea. Yes, we're going to back this. And so, you know, he does all these presentations and everyone across Europe turns up to listen to him speak and applaud and all the rest of it. He goes to America. The Americans love the idea. They think, oh, this is absolutely fantastic. There's one in the eye for the scopes lot. And the, uh, there are a number of really highly placed newspaper magazine there's one particular highly placed newspaper magnet whose name will, escapes me for the moment but he's a, a notorious atheist and he's there you know uh, thumping the tub trying to raise money for this uh, experiment to take place uh, to the point where the KKK become irritated and start writing threatening letters to his potential backers so in fact the, the US money never came through but he didn't need it because he had a huge amount of money from the Pasteur Institute. And he, he, he got to go to um, uh, Guinea. He got to go to Kindia. And when he got to Kindia, he found that the primate station, the French primate station there, was killing more primates than it could actually look after. That catching chimpanzees is really, really quite difficult. And what they were doing, they were killing the parent chimpanzees and then stealing the young and the young were too young and would die without their parents. And they were running out of chimpanzees. And the whole thing was a complete fiasco. He arrives and thinks, why aren't people giving me the kind of reception that I was really rather expecting after everyone was so enthusiastic back in Europe? Why have I arrived at Kindy and everyone's being all kind of shady and creepy and no, you can't come in here? He finds out. It's a horror show. It's an absolute horror show. And it, over a course of two trips, it actually starts to destroy his own moral sense. And it was a conversation with a Belgian doctor who persuaded him that it would be a good idea to reverse the experiment. Trying to impregnate a chimpanzee was really too dangerous. Uh, it was too violent. It was impossible to do. So why not simply impregnate a woman? And while he was in Africa, he uh, said about that experiment, OK, it didn't work. So he came home, he brought some, he ordered some primates, they came back, they became primates in the Sukumi Sanctuary, which later provided primates for the Russian space programme. So in terms of actually getting, setting up a research institute, it was entirely successful. But in the meantime, the Academy of Sciences, which had backed him and given him quite a lot of money, found out that he hadn't actually told the African women, what he was doing. And they did that absolute nut and said, that means we will never work in Africa again. It's completely queered our pitch for an entire continent. And they just sat on his project and just, just had nothing to do with him after that. And he was persona non grata. So a new generation of scientists had come up, creating their own institution, the, um, the Communist Academy, and they said, well, this is such a promising study. Let's take it on. Uh, and so they used the fact that the, uh, the academy had sat on Ivanov's work and said, oh, well, if, you know, if these bourgeois types can't be bothered, we'll take it on. And on the committee taking on that, that project 
which of course came to nothing because it can come to nothing. Using working with volunteers, uh, Ivanov had no shortage of female volunteers and knew exactly what they were signing up for. And we've still got the letters. We've still got the letters of, of women volunteering for this process, uh, for, to be impregnated and you know be the mother of a you know half man half ape. The people overseeing this project were some of the leading geneticists of the day. And of course, they sign up for a project which is essentially a, a eugenic project at the very moment when negative eugenics is sweeping the Western world and they are tarred with the fascist brush as a consequence. They could not have been put themselves in a more exposed position by signing up as supervisors of this particular project. And uh, there's a chap called Georgi Levitt who is an extraordinary geneticist, whose two volumes of human genetics basically lay the ground plan for the whole of the development of uh, human genetics to the present day, through the working out of the human genome and all the rest of it. Um, we're still using his, his bow plan for the discipline. But of course, he then gets tarred with the fascist brush, which is deeply ironic, given his own politics, actually because he's one of the more interesting, sincere Bolsheviks of the period. Yeah, listeners of Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Simon Ings about Stalin and the Scientists. Simon, I want to talk about Vavilov mm. and his career, but really his story, we can't avoid talking about Lysenko if we're going to talk about Vavilov's story. Yeah, So let's talk yeah. about Lysenko first of all and his <laughs> part in this, uh, in this story. Well, Trofim Lysenko, something interesting is happening with him. He's an agrobiologist who uh, became Stalin's poster boy and Khrushchev's poster boy, even more so, actually. Khrushchev was even more in love with him than Stalin was, and creating a homegrown agricultural science that was essentially stuff I learned off my dad uh, and passing it off as innovative, homegrown Russian science. Something really interesting is happening to his reputation at the moment in that a couple of politically motivated historians are of Russians are trying to couch his folk beliefs and his hostility towards genetics, which incidentally was largely uh, driven by his inability to do maths. Genetics involves a certain amount of mathematics and he had no mathematics, so he was set against genetics from the first and he came up with his scientific reasons for that. Uh, scientific excuses for his hostility towards genetics. Anyway, the, the current, uh, this, this current pair of uh, historical ne'er-do-wells are recouching his work as if Lysenko was an epigeneticist, someone who believed that, uh, who had got a handle on the way that the environment regulates gene expression and that he's been terribly mistreated by history. Uh, this is rather like saying that someone who believes in mermaids is a marine biologist. You know, it's utter drivel. Uh, and in fact, what Lysenko did do, he not only destroyed the careers of geneticists, he also 
destroyed the careers of pioneering epigeneticists. Epigenetics is actually yet another grand Soviet scientific success story that was destroyed <laughs> by, uh, by the political machinations of its day. And it's, it's, it's deeply ironic that, you know, uh, Lysenko's reputation is, you know, it's that people are actually trying to couch him as an innovative kind of scientist when it was actually his uh, behaviour that destroyed that very, you know, that very discipline that we're only coming to quite late now. He was a, a peasant. He was a talented, a talented lad. Uh, he got educated uh, through um, uh, correspondence courses and studied the way that plants... You can uh, change the way that plants uh, develop by changing the temperature at which they grow. Uh, and this um, has been known for ages and ages. It was known long before Lysenko turned up, this idea of vernalisation, which is a way that you can chill seed that would normally start growing in the autumn a little bit, go to sleep, hibernate, and then shoot up in the spring. You can actually persuade it to do all its growing in the spring by playing about with temperatures, basically chilling the seed quite early on. And this was known in the 19th century, and people have been playing with it forever, and no one could find a way of making it pay. They knew that it was possible. They didn't know why it was possible, but there was an experimental curiosity, and there were attempts thinking, well, is it really useful to change winter wheat to spring wheat, and vice versa? Is there is there a is there an economic benefit to this? And no one could find any. No one could find any. Lysenko was looking at vernalisation at a time of famine, and when his father vernalised seed and got reasonable results on half an acre, Lysenko, who was already a bit of a poster boy because he was a peasant scientist. He was he was a genuine article. He was a guy who'd you know done the correspondence courses and was now working at a proper institution in Yandra. Uh, when he reported this, everyone got really rather enthusiastic. The scientists got enthusiastic. Vladimir Vavilov and his team, uh, uh, the uh, Botanical Institute, were were very enthusiastic and actually brought him on board and were very encouraging because you know it's an interesting idea. Maybe maybe this will make something. But in the meantime, the the other person who got hold of it was Yakovlev, who edited the what was basically the Soviet Farmers Weekly, mm-hmm. uh, called uh, Bednota or, or Poor Peasants. And this magazine existed to try and get all farmers involved in pooling ideas to improve and revolutionise agriculture, which meant that every nutter, everyone, every member of the Green Ink Brigade started sending in letters saying, you know, my Aunt Flo says that if you walk round an oak tree three times, you know, and all the rest of it. And Yakovlev is, is a fascinating character. Because he ended up Minister of Agriculture. He had... Boundless enthusiasm and energy, matched with fantastic respect and, 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 and fascination with science. He was an absolute fan, combined with no effing clue how to do science at all. He has no idea how hard science is to do. So one of his bright ideas was, well, look, uh, if this looks like a good idea, uh, we'll send it to six farms and we'll send them questionnaires and we'll ask people to fill in questionnaires, and well, that's the way of getting data. Well, actually, depend, that might work, but it really depends how many questionnaires you send. Mm-hmm. And the questionnaires about vernalisation went to people who were drowning in questionnaires. They had so many bits of paper being thrown at them from so many departments. What do you do at that point? Uh, five stars. 
fine. And just get it off the desk. Five stars. Everything's fine. Oh, the, 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 you know, the, the agriculture ministry has this great idea. Keep them quiet. Tell them it's wonderful. Five stars. Boom. Off the desk. These arrive on your couple of steps. Oh my goodness, I've got all these five-star reviews. Let's spread it out even further. And, that, and because of that massive centralisation that, that the Stalinist system has, has, has put in place, these kind of false positive feedback loops are like dynamos in a, in a, in a souped-up engine. So that suddenly, you know, within a couple of years, Lysenko's vernalisation technique, which had been tried by his dad on half an acre are rolled out across the entire Soviet Union. And that's not Lysenko's doing. I mean, Lysenko is his own story because Lysenko was a terrible shit and there's no way around it. And so, you know, he's an interesting story in himself. But the real sort of historical story is Yakovlev and uh, a ministry that de- is desperate for good news and is uniquely structured to manufacture it without deliberately doing so. There's no cynicism involved. They've just created a system where if something goes right, it'll, it'll just stay right forever. Now, the, the man I mentioned earlier, uh, Vavilov, mm-hmm. uh, he's the guy that gets the blame for this because... Nikolai he... Vavilov was developing a, uh, a collection of world seeds and he had a huge amount invested in fertilisation because he was collecting uh, food plants from all over the world in order to find plants that you could grow outside the narrow belt of black earth which provided the Soviet Union, well, provided Russia with most of its food. He went gallivanting off for years and years and collected the world's biggest collection of seeds and essentially invented the seed bank. Everyone talks about Svalbard. Well, that's that's Vavilov. He invented that idea of storing seeds as a resource, as an intellectual and practical resource for further research and development. And he did so on the promise, which he himself absolutely believed, that with vernalisation as a technique, he could take plants that were not ideally suited to Russian conditions and adapt them so that they would grow in the Russian steppe. And that, that, was the, that was what he was pursuing. And vernalisation was an absolute godsend to him because his global travels had revealed what was not known before, but what he found out was that actually most food plants like nice warm weather. There aren't that many food plants like the cold. In fact, most things want to grow in the subtropics, really. And adapting new foods to Russia what he ended up doing was collecting a load of new foods that were even less well adapted to Russian conditions than the ones he started off with. Now, he didn't know, until he started, he didn't know that, but that's what he ended up with. So he collects this fantastic collection, which is not of huge use. But that's okay, because with fertilisation, the results we're getting from fertilisation, we can adapt these plants. But over time, he realises he becomes increasingly aware and he's very reluctant to admit it and his colleagues are doing their not because he's so reluctant to admit it but even he in the end has to admit that the lad the canny peasant lad that he's bringing on is an utter snake in the grass um, has no is, is a bad scientist for one and is also covering up how bad a scientist he is by political machinations uh, that will in the end in the end got Favlov it's a little bit indirect. You can't put this entirely at Lysenko's door, but he essentially creates the conditions under which Vafilov is finally arrested and dies of starvation in Saratov prison. I want to talk about what goes on to happen with his seed bank then, with the um, Bureau of yeah. Applied yeah. Botany, which yeah. 
during so, the occupation. Yeah, well, it's another it's another victim of Putin actually because it survived the Second World War incredibly. It was kept in um, uh, various storerooms and in various planting centres. Tubers, you need to plant them out every year. So it was it was a combination of small farm plots and a literal bank of boxes and envelopes containing seeds. And it was uh, all these different little centres which comprised the seed bank were in uh, Leningrad. And under the siege of Leningrad, you have this huge store of food that is so important in terms of world food supply and the, the possibilities of developing new foods and feeding a growing European population that Hitler himself instituted an SS, uh, created a specific, a special SS unit to try and steal the food bank because with it he thought he could control European food supply for the next 100 years and he wasn't wrong and he did try and steal it. He did steal quite a bit but he never managed to get the um, collection in Leningrad. Rats got some of it. They were tearing through metal boxes, literally tearing through metal boxes. Uh, in the end, they had to reinforce the boxes inside other boxes and suspend them from ropes uh, up in the air to try and prevent the rats from getting into them. And somehow the rats managed to get up into the rafters and along the ropes and onto the metal boxes and burrow through them as well. It was absolutely horrific. People tried to break in. People were not nearly as good as rats at stealing the food. Nonetheless, almost all the collection survived. But the people looking after it, a lot of them did not. And there are... I can think of a couple of cases, there are probably more, of people who are found dead beside... Uh, there's one guy called Ivanov, incidentally, who was found dead of starvation, surrounded by packets of rice that he was cataloguing and ensuring that the collection was correct and everything was uh, maintained. It was an extraordinarily sad and heroic story to be told about that, that seed collection. People died in order to maintain it, and it survived, despite the fact that the, the Lysenko slagged it off and said it was pointless and actually prevented its, its restitution for some years. It largely survived uh, until uh, its holdings its farmland were sold off to the highest bidder under Vladimir Putin. Lovely Putin again. Although, to be fair, we probably haven't lost anything now because the, the idea of the seed bank had by then gained currency across the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, that, what we've inherited from Vavilov is a, is a global system of seed banks. There's a, there is a fantastic one that got rescued um, recently in Syria. There's a hugely important Syrian seed bank, which, which was largely rescued, thank goodness. Uh, there are terrific, there's a terrific seed bank in Ethiopia. And of course, there's the famous one in Svalbard uh, in Sweden, which is the one that everyone has seen pictures of, this gigantic concrete monolith in the middle of, in the middle of nowhere. But I find it more, kind of more impressive that there are seed banks in, in the countries of origin of most of our useful plants, places like Ethiopia, places like Syria, places like Libya. The rise of, of Lysenko, I mean, it could be put in the sort of context of, of, a, of sort of wider... First of all, you've got this, what seems weirdly familiar now, sort of like dislike of experts going on. Mm. But there's also the, the working class sization of, of the experts as well. And there are other people. There's this guy, uh, Michurin, who's mm. like this sort of like... You yeah. know, 
Another sort of charlatan barefoot gardener yeah, guy who becomes... Yeah, I mean, the, um, the, the thing about... The thing that was so striking uh, in the writing of Stalin and the scientists was that you, you kept finding figures that had uh, almost direct parallels in the, United, in the West, uh, maybe in the UK, quite often in Paris, uh, quite often in the United States. And Mitchell has an exact equivalent in, in America, in Burbank, Luther Burbank. Luther Burbank, who was written of as this great agrobiologist, this old man with no education who comes along and is able to breed fruit trees. And isn't it remarkable what he's done? Well, actually, no. Luther Burbank produced bugger all, apart from three beautifully illustrated books, most of which are complete nonsense. He claimed he, his claims included a prune tr- uh, a, a plum tree where the fruit withered on the vine, creating an instant prune. It was all utter garbage. Uh, Mitterin had a kind of similar background. Oh, he was neglected for years, but then again, so was Luther Burbank. Uh, he was neglected by the, the Tsars uh, because uh, they couldn't make any sense of what he was doing. He was basically trying to grow he was basically trying to hybridise fruit trees from seed. And that is a really hard thing to do because fruit trees are already complex hybrids. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are no fruit that aren't. You know, we've hybridised them forever. Our human history is basically one of hybridising fruit trees to the point where they can actually grow fruit that's worth eating. Um, and so hybridising from seed is really very, very difficult uh, thing to do. And as a consequence, uh, Michurin, who never actually came up with anything worth selling, he never came up with, with the goods in terms of agriculture. Nonetheless, he was a canny bugger, and he was coming up with very, very unusual crosses. And uh, Nikolai Vavilov really liked his work. He reckoned that, you know, the guy was he never regarded him as a scientist, but he thought that he, as an experimentalist, he was extraordinary. He was really quite extraordinary. And actually, uh, Vavilov put him up for membership of the uh, Academy of Sciences. And so uh, Mitchum became a, a member of the Academy of Sciences late in his life. So it's, it's kind of a happy story, were it not for the fact that uh, Mitchum is used as a, as a sort of a, a blunt weapon by the political forces that came, came to fruition after, after Mitchum's death. You see, Mitchum comes from that generation who wants... Who, who believes that acquired characteristics can be inherited. The, the story that is always trotted out for the very good reason that it was the, the way it was trotted out in the first place by the chap who actually came up with the idea, the story that everybody knows, is that if a giraffe has to stretch to reach the leaves, the, tall, the leaves on the tall tree, then the giraffe's offspring will themselves have longer necks. And that's the basic idea. And... You can understand why someone like Michurin, who, is, uh, who has been breeding unusual fruit his entire life, looks at his life's work and goes, there's no rhyme or reason to this. There's no order to this. It's, it's an art, not a science. And everything in his experience, and it's not just casual experience, he's a good experimentalist. Everything in his experience working with fruit trees indicates that there's no orderliness to nature at all, that there can't be any such thing as genetics. It has to be the influence of the environment that shapes the next generation. Nikolai Vavilov didn't hold to this. Nikolai Vavilov was absolutely fascinated with uh, the new genetics and was not a, not, a, not a bad geneticist himself. Nonetheless, he had a lot of time for Mitchell and said, actually, the, you know, one can understand where he's coming from, and that's why 
you know, still put him forward as a, as a member of the Academy of Sciences. When genetics becomes politically tainted with eugenics, and specifically the negative eugenics of fascism in Germany, then it becomes politically useful to say that genetics is itself fascist and we will, in, uh, in, in opposition to it, hold fast to our original belief in the acquisition of inherited characteristics. And you have to ask yourself why you needed to go that far. Why did you need to argue against genetics if you were simply trying to reduce the political clout of a generation who happened to be geneticists, but your argument with them is that they are you know, a, a protagonist in the 1905 failed liberal revolution. And the only conclusion I was able to draw was that it was Stalin's personal decision. And this is very, very uncomfortable thing for the historians hate this kind of thing, because you know the idea of the great man view of history is, is really uncomfortable. Single people shaping countries is kind of naive and silly. But you're looking at a ruler who was scientifically literate, a passionate believer in the inheritance of acquired characteristics, had a huge amount invested in the idea of the plasticity of plant forms, and his only hobby was trying to breed lemons that would grow in Siberia. Uh, uh, you know, that's, that's Joseph Salem for you. And so the elimination of genetics was politically motivated, but it, it was also scientifically motivated. And, you know, historians have been tearing their hair out for years over this because it's not a story that, that anyone feels comfortable telling. It shouldn't be the case that the world works like that. It really shouldn't, but sometimes, you know, you just have to shrug and say, actually, one person shaped the planet. I've been talking to Simon Ings. We've been talking about Stalin and the Scientists, A History of Triumph and Tragedy, 1905 to 1953, which is out now from Favour and Favour. Simon, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me. Thank you so much, Neil. It's lovely to be here. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.